Well, great singing with you this morning, and uh, excellent message and song today, and appreciate our musicians leading us in it. As a church, here in recent months, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, Pastor David read, have read the text for us this morning out of chapter 5 and chapter 6. We've been making our way through this letter, and we find ourselves in chapter 5 and 6 this morning. So if you have your Bibles open there, you'll be prepared. We're going to look at uh, those paragraphs that uh, were read for us already. But building on where we've been, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, twice over, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. And then twice over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, twice over, Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We do not lose heart. We are always of good courage. Not losing heart and being of good courage communicates something. It communicates stability, security, perseverance, standing firm, standing fast, not being moved, not being shaken, holding fast. And we said that being settled and courageous certainly makes us stand out as a peculiar people in a world filled with people who are unsettled and anxious. We have something that makes us settled and secure in this world. We have a certain hope, a certain future hope. And from the text, we were reminded that we are not losing heart and we are always of good courage because of God, because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And because of our relationship with Jesus, we are truly living life and freedom today. We sang about that a moment ago. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are truly living in freedom. We're genuinely looking forward to the future, to the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. And we're anticipating an eternal tonnage of glory that is incomparable and imperishable and undefiled and reserved in heaven for us. Because of Jesus, we are courageously persevering in the immediate chaos, and we're looking forward in faith to a future of increasing glory. So we've been there for the last few weeks. We've gone there from the text. We are not losing heart. We are being of good courage, always of good courage, and that is a genuine experience of being fixed and settled and secure. But we're going to build on that this morning. Because being fixed and settled and secure doesn't motivate us. It doesn't propel us into a life of love and good deeds. It's one thing to be secure. It's one thing to be courageous. It's another to be active in living the good life. And so as Christians, we don't just want to hibernate in a secure fortress. We want to live into this new life that we have been given and bring others into this freedom as well. So the question is, what motivates us? What motivates the Apostle Paul? What moves him? And so we're going to see that in the text this morning, Paul's motivation. If you look with me at chapter 5, where, again, David read this earlier in the service, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That therefore may put us back into the previous verse, verse 10, where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So that's one motivation. And then chapter 5, verse 14, same paragraph, just a few verses later, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ moves us forward into positive action. So these two motivators that we see in Paul's writing, that we hear are true in Paul's life, the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord is a strong and powerful tension. A tension that moves us into the right kind of living. 
You know, there are many tensions in the biblical text for Christians, and, uh, and often we can get off on one way or another, but the tensions need to be maintained. Uh, for example, let me give you a tension that's in the biblical text that's not in this particular passage. Uh, we, we know that the Lord is returning. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we're looking forward to that, looking forward to that day. We know that Jesus Christ is coming again. He might come back tomorrow. He might come back 200 years from now or 2,000 years from now. And we don't know. And, and the Bible gives us that kind of tension. Jesus is coming back, looking forward to his return. It might be tomorrow. It might be 200 years from now. And that tension moves us into wise living. Because we know that Jesus Christ is coming back, we live in a particular way. We live in the anticipation of his return. The fact that he might not return for 20 years or 200 years also causes us to live in a particular way. We make plans for his glory and for the future good of others. We go out and build hospitals and schools, and we send out missionaries, and we prepare for ministry. And so here's this tension. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. might be tomorrow, so we best be prepared. It might be 200 years from now, so we best be prepared for that as well. And living in that tension, we walk in wisdom. Well, here in this passage, we hear two motivators in Paul's life, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord without knowing the love of the Lord will keep you away from him because he will not feel safe to you. If you know the fear of the Lord, but you don't know the love of the Lord, you're going to keep your distance. On the other hand, knowing the love of the Lord without knowing the fear of the Lord will keep you from doing what pleases him. If the Lord is all love and nothing else, the Lord will be irrelevant to you and you will feel no accountability toward him and consequently he will have no influence on your daily actions. So the fear of the Lord, the reverential awe of who he is and the acknowledgement of him, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ makes for a powerful tension and moves us into the right kind of living. Well, let's see if we can see it from the text. Let's look back at verse, chapter five, verse nine. We're gonna go back a little bit. But follow along. This is too much scripture to put on the screen, so follow along in your text. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. He knows. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for who their sake died and was raised. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Strong motivations. Standing before God is an awesome and a fearful thing, don't you think? Standing before God is an awesome and fearful thing. Verse 9 says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ that experience of standing before the Lord will be significantly greater than being called to the principal's office or standing in a human court of law before a human judge 
or meeting your future in-laws for the first time for their personal evaluation. Matter of fact, how many of you would like to come up here this morning and just give a testimony of your life? You're like, no, I'm not really comfortable with that. The scripture here says we are all going to stand before God, and there's no one greater to stand before. We're going to stand before the God who created all things, the God who owns all things, the God who told us how to live, the God who has shown us how to live. Paul says, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we live in a particular way. Verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. And verse 11, we persuade others to do the same because they too will stand before the Lord. And so this first motivating factor, the fear of the Lord, it's big. We want to please him. We don't want to displease him. We, We have a reverential awe of who he is. And God is not someone to trifle with. God is no joke. You don't want to disregard him, to ignore him, to disbelieve him or disobey him. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs, if you were to read it, repeatedly it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Only the foolish disregard God. The fool, according to the book of Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and then he lives with that maintained delusion because even creation calls out that God exists and we're accountable to him. So this is the first motivating factor. The fact that we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ is a motivating factor in our lives. The fear of the Lord. On the other hand, the love of the Lord, the love of Christ, is a motivating factor in our life. This is the tension. The Lord is to be feared and revered and respected, and the Lord, he loves us. He truly loves us. Verse 14, it clearly says, Jesus died for our sin. One has died for all. Jesus has died for our sin. Jesus rose for our salvation. His resurrection secures our reconciliation to God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God and we have been joined to Jesus in a vital union. And that vital union that we have with Jesus will keep us from condemnation at the judgment seat. We won't be condemned. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so here this is. We have this reverential awe of God, and the God that we have a reverential awe of, he loves us. And he's given us Christ, and Christ has died for us, and Christ has reconciled us to him. He loves us dearly. And yet we will still stand before him to give an account of our lives and be rewarded or not rewarded for our faithfulness to him as revealed by the conduct of our lives. So we're no longer under condemnation. We praise God for that, but we are still accountable to live by faith in the one who reconciled us into God. Let me say it this way. The God who we infinitely revere, the God who we infinitely respect and fear is the same God who has loved us with an everlasting love. Knowing this and understanding this moves us into the right kind of living. So this is the first part of the message. I gotta warn you this morning, there's really about three messages being given today. And this is message number one. Paul's motivation is pure. Paul's motivation is pure. What motivates him? The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Moving into the second part of our message, Paul's message is clear. Uh, Paul says here in the text that, you know, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What's his persuasive message? What does he communicate? How does he persuade others? What does he say? Well, if you want to know the extended version of Paul's message, then read the book of Romans. Because Romans is Paul's message that he communicated everywhere he traveled. If you want the concise version of what Paul preached everywhere, 
Look with me into the next paragraph. Let's pick up where we left off, verse 14, and we'll read down to the beginning of the next chapter. Chapter 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins, their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Here's the message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. He's quoting Isaiah 49. God saved the children of Israel out of Babylon. There's a far greater salvation that's happening now. Jesus Christ is saving us from Satan and sin and death and bringing us unto God. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what's the message? Let's think it through for just a moment. This is very familiar territory. But Jesus' death was a definitive death for everyone. He says that twice in this passage. Jesus died for all. If you want to understand the justice of God and his attitude towards sin, then look to the cross where Jesus, the righteous one, the one who knew no sin, became a sin offering from God for everyone. Jesus died. He died for all. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. Jesus' death was for humanity's sin. God is just. God punishes sin. And Jesus became a sin offering. Don't disregard the offering. Don't belittle the offering. If you disregard the offering, you'll pay for your sin yourself. If you want to know the justice of God, look to the cross where Jesus died for all. If you want to know and understand the love of God and his saving work towards sinners, well then again, look to the cross where Jesus gave his own life to reveal and give God's actual love to real people who have earned judgment. Jesus' death was for sin and it was for everyone. Jesus' resurrection has secured our reconciliation to God. Obviously, there was a barrier between us and God, or Jesus wouldn't have to work a reconciliation. There was a barrier between us. That barrier was sin, inherited sin, and actual sin. Jesus came as a sin offering, and he removed the barrier. And then as the God-man, he, raised, he was raised from the dead, and he has secured our eternal reconciliation. Jesus is our forgiveness, our acceptance, our salvation. This is huge. Matter of fact, in this passage, Jesus' death and resurrection on this planet is so cosmic. It is so colossal. It is so comprehensive that we no longer regard people, nor do we regard Jesus from a human point of view. 
Paul said, we used to regard people from a human point of view. We even used to regard Jesus from a human point of view. We thought him to be a false messiah, just a man who came to lead a cause and he was killed on a cross. We no longer regard mankind nor Jesus from a human point of view. Matter of fact, because this death and resurrection is so cosmic, so comprehensive, so colossal, we no longer regard people without reference to God. We can't. If Jesus died for all and was raised from the dead for everyone, then no one is to be regarded apart from this. This is universally definitive. This applies to everyone. Everyone is in relationship with God through Christ. Everyone. People are either in Christ and a part of this new cosmic creation, this whole new thing that Jesus has brought about, or they're outside of Christ and they're still in condemnation for their unbelief and disobedience. But we now regard no one apart from reference to God. Everyone is in relationship to Christ. They are either in Christ or outside of Christ and we regard everyone this way. Those who have heard this good news of what God has done for humanity through Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection, those who have heard that good news and have believed the message and placed their faith in God's mercy and in God's provision, they become ambassadors. They are now messengers. And their message is, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the message is Jesus. Jesus is the sum total of our salvation. It's all in Christ, and there's no salvation outside of him. Jesus himself, speaking of this salvation, he said it's like Moses lifting up the serpent on the pole. Now, you can go back to Numbers chapter 21 this afternoon if you'd like, and you'd remember that judgment that God was pouring out on the nation of Israel because of their disobedience, and they were being bitten by snakes. And so the, the people are crying out to God through Moses, and Moses goes to God, and God says, hey, put a serpent on a pole and lift that serpent up on a pole and the people who look to the pole will live, the people who don't will die. And Jesus uses that and says, you believe in God's mercy and you trust in Jesus, you live. You don't look, you don't live. You disregard the message, you discredit the offering, you reject Jesus, there's no other salvation coming. Jesus is mankind's eternal hope and this applies to everyone. That's why he says in verse of chapter 6, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. All right, so let's go back into the message. Paul's motivation is pure. What motivates Paul? The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Paul's motivation is pure. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. And Paul's message is clear. What's his message? Well, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Believe in his mercy. Trust in his provision and be reconciled to God. That's message number two. You still with me? We got one more message to go. I could have made this three weeks real easy. The last part of the message is Paul's ministry has integrity. All right, I'm gonna pause here for a moment. Why would Paul be writing this stuff? Why would Paul be writing this to a church that he planted? He's their apostle. He's their founding pastor. He's been there. He stayed with him an extended period of time. He got the church off the ground. He's visited there more than once. He's going to go back there again. Why is Paul writing this church that he planted and saying, hey, my motivation is pure and my message is clear and my ministry has integrity? Why would he be saying this to them in a letter? 
Well, let's see if we can see it. Chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Do you think maybe people are finding fault with Paul? Finding fault with his ministry? Do you think maybe this is why Paul is defending his motivations, his message in his ministry? Let's read down to verse 11, back in verse 3. So we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, Hey, did any imposter contact you this week through a text message? Pretending to be Pastor Mark Hazen and asking for a favor? Can you buy me some Apple gift cards for people who are suffering from cancer? Many of you got that text message this week. Paul's saying, I'm not an imposter. We are treated as imposters, and yet we are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. You can flip over a page to chapter 7, verse 2, and it says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. If Paul's motivation was driven by selfish ambition, not by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, but if Paul's motivation was driven by selfish ambition and if his message was man-made up, some hocus-pocus story that would proclaim him and his own promotion and advancement, there would be no way that Paul would continue going through the ministry that he's going through. Hardships, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, hunger, deprivation, If Paul's motivations were selfish and his message was for his own advancement, he would have given up. But he has a singular ministry integrity. His ministry came from God and not from himself. And according to this passage, Paul is doing all that he can to remove obstacles for the message to be proclaimed and for the love of God to be shared and received and shared some more. Paul says to them here in this passage, man, I I came to you and I lovingly shared the message of the gospel with you and I've lovingly shared my whole life with you and you're restricting your affections toward me. That's a bummer. Paul's like, man, I've, I've given my life for you guys and I've shared the message of the cross with you guys and you're restricting your affections. Bummer, what's gone wrong? What's happened? Well, just think with me. Leaders, by the nature of who they are and what they do, leaders are both praised and criticized. Hyper-praised and hyper-criticized. Often praised and criticized more than they deserve. And it just goes that way. Leaders are always under scrutiny. Leaders are always under observation by both supporters and detractors. And every imperfect leader, which is every leader, is going to be open to applause and disapproval. And the applause and the disapproval can become problematic. Praise can lead to inflated egos and pride and 
over criticism and complaint can lead to discouragement and leadership departure. This almost goes without saying, if, if you can't properly handle the praise and if you can't handle criticism, you really ought to stay out of positions of influence because you'll face both of them. It's, it's inevitable. In reading through this letter, both in this section and the whole letter, we become very aware that Paul had his critics in Corinth. He had his supporters too, but his critics had become detrimental, not just to him, but to the health of his, the church. His critics were causing the church to hurt as a whole. And at various points in this letter, we find the Apostle Paul defending himself. That's what he's doing here. Guys, my motivation is pure. My message is clear. My ministry has integrity. You know this. In the letter, we find Paul defending himself, which he repeatedly says he has no interest in doing. He's been driven to it by them. And we discover as we read through the letter that he's far less concerned with defending his own honor than he is promoting the welfare and the health and the happiness and the flourishing of the church that he planted. Paul wants that church to do well. Paul wants that church to flourish. He wants that church to live in the fear of the Lord and to know the love of the Lord and to receive the good news and share the good news and reproduce as a healthy organism. Paul's concerned for that church. That's why he's saying these things. In our reading this morning, we discover that Paul's making it very clear. Man, my motives are pure, my message is clear, and my ministry has integrity. I've wronged no one. I've corrupted no one. I've taken advantage of no one. Paul wants no barrier to be between them. No restrictions in their affections. Paul wants the power of the gospel to be worked out in their life in real practice. He shared the gospel with them. He shared his life with them. They're restricting their affections. And his critics have misrepresented his character and his message and his calling and condemned his ministry. And Paul is concerned about the souring of the relationship between them. But we learn, as Paul communicates here, we learn something large. Theology isn't just theoretical. Theology, what we know and believe about God, isn't just for devotional thoughts. It's practical. It's worked out in reality between us. The relationship we have with God is to be worked out within the community of people here on earth. As Paul wrote in another letter, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the love of the Lord. We work out our salvation in fear of trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us to will and to act for his good purposes. So that's what's happening here in this letter. Now with that in mind, look at the very next verse that's gonna be the beginning verse for next week. Chapter six, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Fascinating. Nearly 100% of the time I've heard that verse used, it's in reference to marriage isn't even in the clear geography of this text. This has nothing to do with marriage. The principle might be applied to marriage, but this, this has nothing to do with marriage. What does it have to do with? The church... The church, Paul's writing to that church and he's saying, my motivation is pure, my message is clear, my ministry has integrity. Watch out. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You ought to examine. There, there, there's some there whose motivations are not pure. 
They're concerned about outward appearances, not what's really in the heart. Their motives aren't pure and their, their, their message is convoluted. They're gonna share a message that doesn't cause all of us to boast in Jesus Christ. It's gonna be a message that you'll start boasting about yourself because of your spiritual position. And, and, and their ministry, watch, watch their ministry. What, what fruit is their ministry producing? So, so here, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I have anything to do with marriage. It has to do with the church. And we'll go there next Sunday morning. How's that sound? That, that kicks us off. If you, if you want to do your reading ahead of time, which I encourage you to do, we always, we always do this. Uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 is next week's text. But if you want the whole context, uh, you can look at chapter 6, verse 14 through the end of chapter 7. And uh, we'll take a couple of weeks looking at that passage. But this is what I want you to know this morning. This is clear from the text. I hope it's clear to you and your mind. Paul is saying his motivation is pure. His motivation is the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. This is what moves him. Remember, we're not losing heart. We're always of good courage, but there's a motivation factor here. It's the fear of the Lord. We're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the love of Christ. We won't be condemned, but we will receive rewards for what we've done here in our body, whether it be good or bad. So the fear of Christ and the love of Christ moves us. His message is clear. What's his message? One has died for all, all have died. The one who died for all was raised from the dead. And through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how we're reconciled to God. So we're ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He, there's no other salvation coming. He's it. So we no longer regard people from a human point of view. Everyone is in relationship with God. Either they are in Christ or outside of Christ. And this matters. So his motivation is pure. His message is clear. And Paul's ministry has integrity. And it's shown by this conduct of his life and what he's endured for the sake of Christ in the power of God. All right, that's, that's what we'll close off there. You need to spend some time enjoying one another before our time, uh, our time ends here. But let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to a Corinthian church and that your spirit wrote to them and to us today. We thank you that we have a copy of it and can read from it and learn from it. We boast in Jesus Christ. We glory in the cross. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided us in him. We thank you that it is complete and full and that we are in a right relationship with you because we've been reconciled to you through Christ. We're grateful for his powerful resurrection. We're looking forward to his return. We live unto that day and we pray that it would come soon. Father, I pray that we might be faithful ambassadors to the world, that we might think of others in reference to you and, uh, and share the love of Christ in word and deed. Father, I pray that as a church, we would continue to press on and mature and to grow in faith and knowledge and in grace and be a beautiful assembly where your character is made known. Father, I pray that you'd bless our fellowship even with one another as we continue on this morning enjoying one another. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.